It is always a, a joy to be able to gather with God's people. Uh, it's a joy to sing uh, truth uh, to one another. Um, and uh, that's good for our souls, isn't it? To, to be reminded of the truths of who God is, uh, of his work of salvation, um, and uh, to come to his word uh, as well as we hear uh, from uh, him. Uh, we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 3 as we think about the subject of confidence in God's faithfulness. If you were here in Sunday school, uh, you will have heard the theme of God's faithfulness throughout um, our presentation as we look back on what God has done and as we look forward to what he will uh, do. And uh, we can have great confidence in God's faithfulness. And as we look back at his faithfulness, it should strengthen and encourage us as we seek to follow him uh, for the future. But we have to be honest that there are challenges uh, to that confidence that we often face. Uh, we live in a sin-cursed, broken world where we experience all kinds of difficulties and challenges. Now, I don't know everyone here this morning. We know some of you. Uh, and even those that we know don't know all of the things that are going on in your life right now or what might be coming up for you in the next few weeks or months. Uh, but because I know that we live in a, a world that is cursed uh, by sin, I know that all of us face difficulties and challenges and trials and circumstances that maybe we wish uh, we didn't have. Uh, maybe it is relational concerns, maybe problems in your family, in your marriage, with your children, children with parents, uh, with neighbors, with coworkers, with classmates at school. Maybe it is health concerns that you're facing, or maybe a loved one is facing. Maybe wondering what the future holds. Maybe financial concerns. How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to make the ends meet? Maybe job concerns. Am I going to have uh, this job uh, in the next year? It could be the loss of loved ones. Maybe you're fearful and anxious about the future. What's going to happen? All of us face these kinds of realities in our lives. Uh, and... Uh, we, as we're in this time of transition as a family, um, uh, have some challenges and things that, that we are working through. And we can wonder, can we trust God in the midst of those things? Should we keep following him? Is it really worth it? As we come to Deuteronomy chapter 3, uh, just a, a little bit of context um, uh, uh, for us. Uh, this is uh, Moses um, uh, writing uh, to uh, the people of Israel. The, the nation is on the brink of, of a change. Uh, they are getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and go into the land that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan. This is after they have just spent the last 40 years wandering around in the wilderness because of their disobedience and lack of trust in God. As one generation has passed away, and this new generation stands on the east side of the Jordan River waiting to cross over. And in Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3, Moses is giving a little bit of a history lesson uh, to this generation, recalling what God had done in their past. Now, it's not a comprehensive history lesson. I don't know if you like history. Some people do, some people don't. But he's reminding them of what God has done 
in their midst, how God has led them to the place where they are right now. And I believe in these chapters, he's trying to encourage them as they look forward to the future, to what lays ahead for them, not knowing all of what the future holds, but being reminded of who God is in the midst of it. And so I think that's helpful for us as we think about the challenges that we face, as we think about God's faithfulness in our lives. We want to uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 3 together. There are four things that we want to consider this morning. Uh, And the first is this, God has been faithful in the past. We see that in the first 11 verses. We'll read those Uh, together here, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, 60 cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salica and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. As Moses recounts this battle that the Israelites had with um, Og, king of Bashan, and the people of the land in in his kingdom, uh, he reminds them of God's faithfulness to them. It was the Lord, we're told in verse 2, that gave them into their hands. He has given him and all of his kingdom and his land into your hands. If you go back to the end of chapter 2, and it's referenced here in chapter 3, there's the recounting of the defeat of King Sion, another Amorite king that the Israelites had completely wiped out. It was a total victory. We read at the end of verse 3 that they struck them down until there was no survivor left. Verse 4 says they took all of the cities, all 60 cities in his kingdom. God had given his people victory in this land as they were preparing to head out. So this is their very recent history. This is just on the east side of the Jordan River. That land, it was the kingdom of King Sion and Og, and they came out to battle against the Israelites, and they defeated them all. Now, one of the things that that was interesting that struck me as I was reading um, and studying the the passage here in these first 11 verses um, is... 
what Moses reminds them about in chapter 1, an event that happened in their past that um, uh, uh, kind of led to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If you have your Bible, you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 19, it says, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. This is an account of when they sent the, the 12 spies into the land. And of course, probably most of us only know two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, because they're the only two that came back and said, God has given us the land and we should go in and take it, possession of it. But 10, the majority of the spies who had been in the land for 40 days and saw that it was good, said, we shouldn't go in. And we read of their report, uh, beginning in verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. God had said, go in, and they said, no. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven, and besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And what do we see in verse 32? Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. God said, go in. Uh, the majority said, no, we can't do it. And they had a few excuses, a few reasons why they shouldn't go into the land. And unfortunately, the people of Israel sided with the majority. And they didn't go in. They disobeyed. They rebelled against the Lord. They did not believe the Lord, their God. But then as we come to chapter 3, and as he's recounting uh, this defeat of, of King Og... It's almost like he reverses uh, the reality. He shows them how God has already been faithful to answer the fears that the generation before them had at Kadesh Barnea that we just read about. Uh, we, we read uh, that uh, God, that they believed God was going to give them into the hands of the Amorites to destroy them. And yet, what do we read in chapter 3, verse 8? So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan. God was going to destroy them, and yet they destroyed those Amorite kings. Here is an example of God's faithfulness to his people. What else were they afraid of? Well, we read that they were afraid of the cities because they were great and fortified. What do we read in verse 5? Well, these cities were told... 
They were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. And what happened to all those cities? They took every one of them. What was the third fear that they mentioned? Well, the people are greater and taller than we are. There are giants in the land, the sons of Anakim. And we read about Og in verse 11. It's kind of, it's, in, in the ESV here, it's kind of in parentheses. It's kind of this weird detail that you think, what, what in the world are they talking about Og's bed for? And the size of it. It mentions that he was the only one left of the remnant of the Rephim. His bed was a bed of iron. It was nine cubits in length and four cubits in breadth, according to the common cubit. Now, I know all of you are very familiar with the cubits. You probably use them to measure everything in your house. You probably know the square footage of your house by cubits. Potentially not. Um, but you might be familiar with the fact that cubit was about the, the length of a forearm, about 18 inches. And so his bed was massive. It was 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. That's a big bed. In fact, some scholars say that it might have even been his coffin that he was buried in uh, when he was killed. And it was there that people could go and see. I don't know if it's like in a museum. You know, we have all kinds of museums in, the, the, in, in Britain that we enjoy going to. British Museum has all kinds of artifacts from around the world. You can go in, you can look at them. You're saying, you can go and see how big this bed was. Why would he talk about how big the bed was? Why was that so important? Well, because Og, I believe, was a, a, a giant man. That's, that's why his bed was so, or coffin was so big. He was the last of the Rephaim. They were known to be tall. And what were they afraid of? They were afraid that the people were greater and taller than we were. And what did God do? He gave them victory over this giant king and over his fortified cities and over those Amorite kings that they thought would destroy them. You see, God was faithful to his people to give them victory that he had promised. As we think about God's faithfulness in the past in our own lives, as we reflect on that, we're reminded of the way that he's been at work. Sometimes we, we can forget to do that, right? We're, we're just in life. We're in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of all the things that are happening in our lives, and we can forget about God's faithfulness to us in the past. Now, some of you who've lived a little bit longer have a little bit longer to look back over your life to see God's faithfulness to see the way that he's been at work as you faced other challenging circumstances. God is faithful. And isn't that an encouragement to be able to look back and see that? Isn't it an encouragement as you think back over your life at the way that, that's one of the things as we were preparing our presentation for this furlough, is just thinking about God's faithfulness. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. We'd have nothing to report if God didn't work outside of we lived in England and tried some things. But God is faithful to us. God is faithful to his church. He's been faithful to this church, hasn't he? Do you think about over the history of this church and, and it being here and the way that God is using it in this community, the way that God is growing it, bringing in new people, people coming to faith, people joining, uh, babies being born. I've heard there's lots of babies that have been born here uh, recently. The way God is at work is an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to us. And as we think back over his past faithfulness, it should help us in our present. So God has been faithful in the past. We see that here with the nation of Israel. We can testify about it in our own lives. In fact, I, I'd encourage you. It, it'd be an encouragement, I think, 
to, to others to share of God's faithfulness. Maybe something that you're thinking about. Just encourage somebody. Say, you know, God's been, been faithful in this way. Just, just want to praise him for that. So God's been faithful in the past. Secondly, God has been faithful to keep his promises, verses 12 to 17. So we'll read those together. When we took possession of the land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at the Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of, Ar of the Arnon, and, the half, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead and Albation, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Rephim. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, and called the villages after his own name, Habath Jair, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from, the Gilead, uh, from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far at, over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Kinnereth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Now you're probably thinking those were some exciting verses, with lots of names that I'm glad I didn't have to pronounce. But it's speaking about, this passage is speaking about uh, the land that had just been conquered that was distributed to two and a half of the tribes of Israel, to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. If you're in your Bible, in the back you might have uh, some maps uh, that uh, maybe display uh, Israel, the world. There's world maps, you know, if your Bible, not all Bibles have maps in the back, but oftentimes we forget that they're there. And uh, most Bibles that have maps will have a, a map of the division of the land of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll see that on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, you will see the land, the area that it's talking about here that was mapped out and given to those two and a half tribes. It mentions two people, Jair and Makir, that I think are singled out because of their role in taking particular areas, and they're given uh, particular areas as a result. I think as an example to, to the people, there's blessing in trusting God, doing what He says. But God's been faithful to keep His promises because the beginning of the possession of the promised land has, has begun. It's, it's not the, the land of Canaan yet, but this is part of the land that was given to the 12 tribes. They wanted this land because it was good for um, livestock, and they had lots of livestock. They, this is the land that we would like, and God has given it to them. He had promised to give His people land, and they were standing on part of that fulfillment getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. There were still lots ahead, still lots that had to be done. It wasn't all finished yet, but they were able to see God's faithfulness to his promises. As we reflect on his promises in his word, we see he's faithful to those as well. God promises to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And we see the reality of that in our lives. As we go through those challenging circumstances, we aren't alone. God is with us. God is in control of those things. God is at work in the midst of those things. And again, that should encourage us. God's been faithful in the past. God's been faithful to keep his promises. Thirdly, God will be faithful in the future. 
God will be faithful in the future. Verse 18, and I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you. Until the Lord your God, or until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, as they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. In these verses, we read uh, about uh, a reminder that Moses gives to those two and a half tribes that just received their possession of their commitment to go with the rest of Israel uh, to gain possession of the land that was on the west side of the Jordan. In fact, when they first came and asked Moses for that land, he was a little bit skeptical. He's like, I'm not sure if this is a good plan. Yet God told him that was okay because he was worried that they were just going to have the possession and make everybody else go. He said, that's not fair. They helped you fight for your land. And they said, no, we, we, will, we will send our men. We will go with our brothers into the land until they have possession of their portion as well. And so he's reminding them that they, this is their promise. This is their commitment to one another. See, the, the unity and the solidarity of the people of Israel was crucial. It was important. There was a danger that they could just go back on that promise and that would cause all kinds of disunity and problems. It reminds us that unity and solidarity of God's people is still important today though too, isn't it? Disunity is one of the things that the enemy uses to cause problems in the family of God. And yet when we're united together, what a blessing it is to serve together to love one another, to encourage and support one another. You mentioned the groups that are, are going to be starting. What a great opportunity it is, isn't it? To gather together as God's people. Why, why is it so important to gather together uh, uh, weekly, regularly, not just on Sundays, to support one another, to care for one another? Because we're involved in a war, a spiritual warfare. We're involved in this world that is, is sin-cursed and broken. And it's hard. Yet not only are we not alone because God is with us, as we've just thought about, but God has put us in a family to care for one another. What a privilege that is. What a privilege it is to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and to support one another as we go through life. And they were to do this until the Lord gave rest to their brothers. It was not if God gave, but until, right? We're, we're thinking about God's going to be faithful in the future. And God was going to give those people their land. And they, they had to believe that. They had to, to believe that God was going to be faithful, right? Because they're leaving their families behind. And the only time they get to return is if God gives them victory. And they come back when it's all finished. So they had to believe and trust that God was going to be faithful. And, and Moses encourages Joshua in verses 21 and 22. What does he encourage him with? He says, listen, 
I've just recounted what God did. And, and Joshua, you were there. You saw what God did to those two kings. And he's going to do the same to all of the kingdoms into which you're crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Doesn't that sound familiar to something that we read in chapter 1? That's what he had told the, the generation before them. God's going to fight for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. We can go in. And the people said, no, they didn't believe. They didn't trust. Again, he's here encouraging Joshua. There, there's going to be a, a massive leadership change here for the people of Israel as well. And those can always be difficult as well. They're going to be going from Moses to Joshua. I'm sure that caused some uncertainty for the people of Israel. And yet he tells him, listen, you can trust God. He will be faithful. He's been faithful in the past. Just look to that and let that encourage you as you go into the land to take possession of it. God will fight for you. It reminds me of a, a, a mathematical equation, not with numbers, but God plus you is a majority. God plus you is a majority. Not because you're with God, but because God is with you. <laughs> when we are with God, and He's at work, we're the majority even when we feel like the minority. And, and that's something that we need to be reminded of as we serve in England. England is a country with only 3% of the population who would be genuine believers. So there are very few believers. And many of the people that we serve and minister to work in jobs where they are the only Christian in their company and students who are the only Christian in their class, the only Christian maybe in their neighborhood. And you feel like you're in the minority. You feel that reality and yet to be reminded that we're with God, we're, we're on the winning side, and with him, we are the majority. It reminded me of the account in 2 Kings chapter 6 with Elisha and his servant. Um, when the king of Syria was coming, wanting to find Elisha, because Elisha kept telling the king of Israel what, what he was doing. And he's like, how's this guy know what's going on? And so he wanted to capture him. So he sends his army, and they surround the city, and in verse 15 of, of, uh, of 2 Kings, I, th I might have said 2 Kings. That's the way we say it in, in England. But 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I mean, this is like critical stage. Looks out, and there's this massive army surrounding the city and they are in trouble and his servant comes to Elijah and says what's the plan here here's how Elisha responds he says do not be afraid we heard those words before already it's a consistent theme isn't it do not be afraid why for those who are with us are more than those who are with them now I don't know how big the city was that they were in but I'm sure that they felt outnumbered I'm sure this army was massive around them, and they're thinking, we're, we're in trouble. And you know, maybe his servant is thinking, I don't know if Elisha has just kind of lost his mind here. He's, he, maybe he hasn't seen. Maybe I need to take him out so he can see the army. He says, listen, there's more people with us than with them. Then we're told in verse 17, then Elisha prayed, and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. 
So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And what did he see? Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, Elisha knew something the servant didn't because the servant couldn't see that reality. And, and that's true for us too, isn't it? You don't always see how God is working. One person said something like, God is working in 10,000 ways. We might only be aware of three of them. The reality is that God is at work. God is there, and when we're with Him, we can have great confidence. When we fix our eyes on Him, everything else starts to shrink in our vision. See, what happens with our circumstances, with those difficulties that we were, I was talking about at the beginning there, some of those things maybe that came to your mind? When we're going through those things, a lot of times they fill our, our vision, don't they? They consume our thoughts. We just can't stop thinking about them. We, we can't sleep. Become restless and anxious. And it's just huge. And it's not to say that some of those things aren't significant. Some of the things people go through are, are awful and difficult and hard and challenging. But what happens when we shift our gaze from those things to our God? Does that change the way we see those things? Are those things as big when we put them next to God? At least for me, that's not the case. All of a sudden, those things start to shrink. They're not as big. It doesn't mean they're not still significant. But when I'm reminded of who God is, all of a sudden, my perspective on those things changes. Because our God is big. There's something ahead of you causing you to fear. How big is your God? We can trust God for the future. Doesn't mean he's always going to do what we want, the way that we want him to do it. But we can absolutely trust him because he's faithful. He's been faithful in the past. We can read about that. We can see it. We can look back at our own lives. We can hear the testimonies of others. He will be faithful in the future because he doesn't change. Lastly, fourth point, God will be faithful to keep his promises. So we read the, the last bit of Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. This is Moses speaking. He says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. In this last section, we read of Moses praying, interceding, praying to God and asking him to go, be allowed to go over the Jordan with the people, to go into the land of Canaan.
but he was not permitted because of his actions in striking a rock when he was supposed to speak to, to it, and that's found in Numbers chapter 20. But he, it says here that he pleaded with the Lord. So he didn't just come to God one time and say, God, could I go over? And God said, no. It's kind of like kids. My kids are like this. I was like this as a kid. Uh, if you have kids, I'm sure there are times when they're like this as well, right? They, they just keep asking you for something. I mean, they, they really want something, and they just keep asking you. And you say no, and then they ask you again, and you say no, and they ask you again, and they say no, and, you ask, and that, that keeps going, right? And, and at, some, at some point, often, they'll be like, that's it. We're not talking about it anymore. And that's kind of what's happened here. Moses keeps, there, there's this relationship between Moses and God. Right? God isn't just up there, some detached being. He is, he's talking with, with God, and he's pleading. He's saying, God, be, be merciful. Can I go in? I'd love to be able to go into the land. And God says, no. He says, in fact, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Moses had devoted so much of his time to this calling, so much of his life, the last third of his life, and he wasn't going to be able to see it through in the way that he wanted but God said, you're not going to be able to enter the promised land, but you'll be able to go up on the top of the mountain. You'll be able to see it with your eyes, but you're not going to cross over the Jordan to it. And that's what happens at the end of Deuteronomy. So he's allowed to see the promised land from a distance, but he did eventually get to go into the promised land. Because we read in the Gospels in places like Luke chapter 9 of the transfiguration of Jesus. It wasn't in his earthly life, but we read that there with Jesus was Elijah and Moses in the promised land 1,500 years later. You see, God was going to be faithful to keep his promises because Moses was to charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. Why? Because of this leadership change that was going to happen. Because Joshua, God tells him, is going to be the one who takes them in to, to take possession of the land. Again, it's, it's not a question that, uh, of it's going to happen. He will, he shall put them in possession of the land that you will see. God was going to be faithful to his promises. God had said that they would get the promised land he had promised it to their, their forefathers, and he was going to be faithful to complete what he had promised. So Moses' task was to prepare the people and Joshua for that transition, to encourage him, to remind him of God's faithfulness and the people, so that they would follow him and trust him and have confidence in him as they cross the Jordan. There's just one last thing uh, as, as we close. One last thing that struck me in that last section is Moses' prayer. O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? We just talked about shifting our, our gaze, our focus from our circumstances and problems and difficulties to God. I thought about our big God and, and how big is our God was a question I asked. How does Moses view God? Is his vision of God big? Well, as I, I read those verses, I think it is. Because <laughs> he says, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness. Greatness. 
And as I began to think about Moses' life, that really struck me. Moses was put in a wicker basket and sent down the, the Nile, was, was brought out by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house. He left and was a shepherd in the wilderness, and one day God spoke to him from a burning bush that didn't burn up and called him and said, I'm, uh, I'm calling you to go and, and into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You're going to be the one who leads the people out. And, and he went, and, and he was the instrument, human instrument that God used to speak to Pharaoh as, as God bro, uh, brought ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt until the point of the death of the firstborn where Pharaoh said, Get out! And they went. And they traveled to the, the Red Sea. And God said, hold your staff out. And the Red Sea opened up and it was dry and the people walked across the dry land. And then it drowned Pharaoh's army as they were in pursuit. They went then to Mount Sinai where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments written on stone with his own finger. In fact, two copies. And Moses was there up on the mountain with God. He was there as God led them uh, by a pillar of fire and, and a cloud by day. He was there as God provided every single day for them manna. They would walk out of their tents and there it was on the ground. They could pick it up and they'd have food to eat. In fact, they didn't even know what, to, what it was, so that's why they called it manna. Which means, what is it? He provided water from rocks and quail. Provided victory over their enemies, which you read about here in chapter 3. Now, think about all those things that Moses got to be. I, I think about those things. Man, just to, maybe just to be there for maybe one of those events would have been something. And Moses' perspective is God's just getting started. Just, just, just beginning to see. As we look forward to what God has for us, as you think about the future as well. And I encourage you that you can have great confidence in God's faithfulness. We can trust him. We can look back. We can see in his word. We can look back in our lives. As we look toward the future, we go into all of the uncertainties and things that we don't know about with great confidence because, not because we know everything that's going to happen. I have no idea what's going to happen when we return to England but because we have a faithful God who goes with us. And if we have any doubt about his faithfulness and about him keeping his promises, can I encourage you just take, to take a look at the cross? It's there that God won the greatest battle that we face, battle against sin and death, and it was conquered through the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. God is faithful, and we can trust him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are a faithful God, completely faithful in every way, and we can see that as we read your word, we see of your faithfulness. We see the way that you have orchestrated all of things in history to accomplish your plans. We can trust you. 
I, I pray as we uh, think about the challenges and the things that we're facing in our own lives, the, the church here, that, that God, you would help us to be able uh, to put our trust in you. We would have great confidence because you are an amazing God. God who loves us. God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to deal with the greatest problem every one of us faces. The problem of being eternally separated from you because of our sin, and yet in your love, as we've sung already this morning, you sent your son, and we thank you and we praise you for that. So as we move into the future, God, help us to trust you. Help us to know your faithfulness in our lives. Help us to encourage one another as we struggle with that. Forgive us for our lack of faith. How we can be like that generation in Kadesh Barnea who does not believe you. And God, would you help us and strengthen our faith, we pray, by your Spirit as we live for you, as we seek to honor you and glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.